We have come to Galatians chapter 6. So as we read in verse 1, he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. The the exhortation was given in chapter 5 to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Galatians 5.25, Paul wrote, If we live in the Spirit, let, let us also walk in the Spirit, or remain in step with the Spirit. What does this look like? How in practical terms do I do so? We were told in chapter 5 what not to do. In verse 26, he says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. These things are to be avoided toward one another. They all proceed from conceit or vainglory. We perceive whether we're walking in the Spirit by seeing how we behave toward one another. We cannot walk in the Spirit toward God if we are not walking in the Spirit toward one another. Conceit is defined as the holding of a false or empty opinion of ourselves, or vainglory, that is, having empty glory in myself and my accomplishments, an attitude of superiority in regard to others. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we're told, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. William MacDonald says, God does not want Christians to be boastful or conceited braggarts. Men, men living under law often become proud of their miserable achievements and taunt those who do not come up to their standards. And legalistic Christians will often run down other Christians who don't have the same list of borderline things that they condemn. This attitude will provoke others rather than edify them. And some will respond with envy for the conceited, admiring such self-possession. Yet it is all simply walking according to the flesh. Instead, we are to walk in love toward one another. The loving fruit of the Spirit is to be on display in our interactions with each other. Back in Galatians 5 again, verses 13 through 15, we were told, You, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This love that we have for one another is shown through serving one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. The flesh, whether legalistic or libertarian, brings destruction to the body of Christ. In chapter 6, Paul continues his instruction in loving one another. Chapter 5 exhorts us to walk in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Chapter 6 gives us some how-to instructions in this walk. In verse 1, he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. If he's overtaken in a trespass, that can be translated in some places as fault, offense, fall, or sins. This restoration to take place in a spirit of gentleness, this is also uh, translated meekness. It's defined as the right use of power. And then we're to consider ourselves, that is to watch carefully. The Greek word here, we get our word microscope from. So watching carefully, you're zeroing in and magnifying yourself, lest you also be tempted. Of course, there is no person who is immune to temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. He says, all these things happen to them, speaking of the Old Testament um, congregation of the Lord. It happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We can never blame God for our temptation or for falling to temptation because he won't tempt us beyond what, test us beyond what we're able. And he'll also make a way of escape. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 16 James exhorts us, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. That's, that's good. That's good to know. God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Deception is one of the themes of this passage this morning. It's a theme throughout the New Testament. In verse 1 of chapter 6, a person has been tempted... And has fallen to the temptation. He's been overtaken. It's translated by some as trapped or caught like in a snare. He's unable or perhaps unwilling to extricate himself. This fall is known publicly at least to one person. This is not a private fault or a secret sin. How are we to respond? First, do we get on the horn and tell everyone else about it? Do we post it on social media, assuming you have not been banned? Maybe we make them the object of a special sermon. Pastors get accused of that a lot, you know, because that's the Holy Spirit, you know, pointing this out. Some pastors might do that. I can't speak for everyone. Of course, gossip or being a busybody or singling people out has no place in the body of Christ. How do we respond then? We are to seek restoration, not publication. To restore, uh, this word is used 
uh, to restore to good shape, as in the mending of nets that's used in Matthew 4.21, where uh, the Zebedees were there mending their nets, that's restoration, or it's also used uh, to set straight, as in setting a bone. So a bone's been broken, and, and you straighten it out and get it set. Guzik says the overtaken ones need to be restored. They are not to be ignored. They are not to be excused. They are not to be destroyed. The goal is always restoration. Now there's a prerequisite given for the one seeking to restore. He says, you who are spiritual. The Galatians were very proud of their spirituality. And they thought their spirituality was expressed by their keeping of the law of Moses. Paul says, if you are spiritual, you will not bite and devour each other, but you will have a spirit of gentleness toward one another, even when someone falls. One described this as therapy that accomplishes restoration for those who have suffered spiritual dislocation is the idea. There is no idea of punishment whatsoever. This is to be done in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. Now, we see this gentleness throughout the ministry of Jesus. He deals tenderly with those who are seeking to obey and serve God. He recognizes our weaknesses. He does not condemn those who are struggling to be free from sin. In John 3.17, it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then in Luke 19, when Jesus, the incident with Zacchaeus, the short little guy that climbed a tree so he could see Jesus, um, Jesus says to him in verse 9, Luke 19, 9, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. What do we learn about being a son of Abraham in Galatians? Those who are of the faith of Abraham are sons of Abraham. So that's what Jesus is saying about this guy, Zacchaeus. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This was the purpose of Jesus in coming. He didn't come to condemn people. Already condemned. You know, that passage in John. He doesn't have to because we're already condemned and separated from him. He came to seek and save the lost. So this is the purpose of Christ coming into the world. And if you're willing for God's purpose to be carried out in your life, then this will be accomplished in your life. This is what God desires to do for every person. If the person is willing to have it done for them. The gentleness of, this gentleness of Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy. We see this in Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 15 through 21. It says, uh, when Jesus knew it, that, that the Jews were plotting to kill him, he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, quoting from Isaiah 42, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name Gentiles will trust. I like that. He's going to send forth justice to victory. You know, Today we talk about a lot of different kinds of justice. You know, 
let's say social justice, um, critical race theory related to these kind of justice ideas. Anytime you have to, <clears throat> anytime you have to justify the word justice with an adjective, it's no longer justice. It's injustice in some way. It will change. You know, justice is justice, and that's what the Lord's going to bring, bring forth to victory. But he doesn't break the bruised reed. He desires to bind up its bruise so that it may be fully healed. He doesn't snuff out the smoking flax, but he seeks to fan it into flame once again. This is the spirit of gentleness of the Savior. No one who desires life and godliness needs have any fear of coming to him with their hurts or their failings. Jesus reserved his harsh words and judgments for those who considered themselves to be superior to others. The self-righteous, those who trusted in their keeping of the law of Moses, and that this justified them before God. And this he did, that they might become aware of their sin and repent, so that they too might receive life through him. He desired the salvation of every man, just as the Father does. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not his desire. It's not his will that any should perish. The Lord has done and does what he can do. There must be a response on the part of man. We have that uh, choice to make so that our love is true love and not coerced toward him. Well, this phrase, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, this calls for self-examination. There may be a small jab here on Paul's part. You think you're spiritual by keeping the law? Love your brother by action. How do we know if we qualify? Are we spiritual? It's simple enough. We compare our attitudes and actions with the Word of God. How are we taught to think and behave toward one another? Is this where I am? If not, then do I have to hang up my restoring shoes? No. As in all things, if we see that we are falling short, we're called upon to repent and draw near to the Lord once again. Our fault may only be of the thought or in the heart, and the other's fault public and obvious, yet we need repentance as much as they. When we make things right, Getting the plank out of our own eye, as Jesus talked about in Matthew 7, then we can see to get the speck out of our brother's eye. And it's been pointed out that these two things are the same size. It's a matter of perspective. You know, the speck is in the brother's eye. Put a speck in your eye, it looks like a plank because it's so close. But the scriptures do call us for uh, to self-examination at times. We read First Corinthians 11 concerning communion this morning, verses 27 through 32. He says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let, but let a man examine himself, so that, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And... I think that's talking about the body of Christ. Some think it's, you know, the body in the in the bread. Well, it's not his real body. It's bread that represents his body. So he's talking about discerning the Lord's body. 
not treating his, the whole passage here in First Corinthians 11 is the way they're treating one another when they come together for fellowship meals and things of that sort. So he says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. This is chastisement from the Lord coming upon them because of their uh, lack of love toward one another. And then he says, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So that's that self-examination. If we uh, let a man examine himself, if we examine ourselves, we find that we're falling short as we compare ourselves with what the Word of God says, then we can make correction. And we, then we don't fall under the chastisement of the Lord because we've judged ourselves. He won't judge us. When we are judged, this is by the Lord, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. This is God's purpose. And anytime we're chastened, anytime we're disciplined by the Lord, uh, we haven't judged ourselves. We haven't repented. And he has to bring some kind of chastisement upon us. His purpose is to restore us, just as we're reading about here in Galatians is that we might be restored and not be condemned with the world. Second uh, Corinthians 13.5 calls us to self-examination. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Is Christ dwelling within you? That's, that's who, who a Christian is, is Jesus Christ dwelling within. So he says, examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? If we examine ourselves and we're still uncertain, we can ask the Lord to reveal to us anything that prevents us from being spiritual. In Psalms 139, verses 23 and 24, David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And uh, I forget what the King James is here. Uh, try me and know my thoughts. And this uh, means something like disquieting thoughts, which, you know, relates to anxieties. So search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Reveal to me, Lord, if there's something I need to uh, make right, something I need to correct. In verse 1 of this psalm, Psalm 139, uh, David says, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. So there's this amazing knowledge of the Lord. He knows everything about us. This inexhaustible knowledge of the Lord toward us. Yet he prays for revelation that he might follow the Lord rightly. And the Lord knows all things. He knows everything about us. But he doesn't share all things with us that he knows about us. <laughs> He's loving, gentle, and long-suffering with us. And he will reveal things that he wants us to deal with as we uh, walk in him. But we should also realize that self-examination should be periodic and limited. It is quite possible for self-examination to become an obsession. My thoughts are always upon myself and how I am succeeding or falling short. This short circuits my service to the Lord and to my brothers. My thinking can be turned inward continually, but the Lord has called us to turn from self to him and to others. Self-examination in its context is of the Lord. Self-obsession is of the flesh. Many attacks of the enemy will seek to put my focus entirely upon myself, particularly my failures. If I have confessed and repented of those, 
and have nothing current that has not been dealt with, I'm keeping clear accounts with the Lord Jesus, then I must turn my thoughts and eyes outward and seek to actively follow the Lord. We are not to become overly contemplative or introspective. We are not of those whose navels are to be meditated upon or gazed upon. Our outlook is to be outward, not inward. Our focus is to be upon the Lord first and upon others, not upon ourselves. May God help us in this. The flesh loves contemplative Christianity. This is a practice that takes me from the objective written word of God to a subjective inner voice, which I'm not to question. Well, this man's sin in verse 1, it's, it's openly known. It's not an offense against you in particular. This is an offense against God. The situation of personal offense is addressed by Jesus in Matthew 18. In verses 15 through 20, he says, If your brother sins against you, and you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So first you approach them individually, just between you and them. And then if you're not reconciled, then you need some witnesses. You take them. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, this we often quote, you know, just when we're getting together, two or three together, he's in their midst. This is in the context of uh, this seeking to be reconciled in this um, sin, one brother against another brother. But it can be more generally used as well, you know. But this binding and loosing is talking about this particular situation with them. Now, if it's public, then those steps don't necessarily apply. If, if someone's being taught publicly, it should certainly be corrected publicly, just as Paul did with Peter in chapter 2 of our book here. So you who are spiritual then approach the situation in humility, a spirit of gentleness or meekness, recognizing that you also are subject to temptation and must be aware of being the possibility of being overtaken. John Stott says this suggests that gentleness is born of a sense of our own weakness and proneness to sin. Wiersbe says the influence of the legalists among the Galatians made this warning necessary. Nothing reveals the wickedness of legalism better than the way the legalists treat those who have sinned. Uh, it's been, you know, the church has been compared to an army that uh, goes in and bayonets its own wounded, you know, after the battle's over. And certainly in, uh, if we're legalistic, that tends to be our attitude toward others. So a spirit of humility also recognizes that prayer is imperative in the situation. I'm not uh, sufficient in myself to go and make any kind of a restoration or correction. There are those who seek to restore, but in a spirit of pride and condemnation, they are actually in need of restoration themselves, but they do not know it. 
Uh, Chuck Smith shares on, in one of his teachings about a situation he encountered with an erring brother. This uh, particular man had left his wife and had moved in with another woman somewhere. And so Chuck, you know, was going to him to seek and, and uh, restore him, and he wanted to uh, talk to him about it, you know. And so Chuck went in, and they were there. And every time Chuck began to speak, he just broke down weeping. <laughs> and he never did get to say anything to the guy. He just kept breaking down weeping. And finally he was, you know, he got so embarrassed, he said, well, I, I need to go. And, but that brought correction in that man's life. So there's this broken, broken as gentleness uh, when we come to people. And you may not find yourself in a situation where you're weeping like that. But the spirit of gentleness, you're, you're desiring the restoration of the person. Uh, Vincent, the Greek scholar, says, Before you deal severely with the erring brother, consider your own weakness and susceptibility to temptation and restore him in view of that fact. Now, James concurs with Paul in this idea of restoration. James 5, verses 19 and 20, he says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So this, this restoration is something that we're called to, at least to seek to restore the person. I mean, it's, there are times when they refuse to repent. They refuse to be restored. In verse 2, the end of Galatians 6, he says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In seeking to restore someone who has fallen, you are taking their burden on as your own. And this word particularly means a weight. It's a heavy situation, you might say. This is a simple command to obey. Just look for a burden that you can help bear and go for it. This is a fulfillment of the law of Christ, Paul tells them. If the Galatians want to be under the law, they should consider the higher law of Christ Jesus. Earlier in Galatians 5.14, which we read, all the law is fulfilled by love for one another. This is not a law to be kept for righteousness, but a law to be fulfilled in the spirit. In fact, this law is foreign to the flesh and can only be fulfilled or lived out in the Holy Spirit. It's a higher calling than the law of Moses because it is of the spirit and not of the letter. This love only comes as a fruit of the Spirit. A person may like the sound of it. They may try to accomplish it. But apart from the Holy Spirit, it will be a futile effort. The flesh is incapable. We'll read again in Romans 8, verses 2 through 4, where he says, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And we see this life, uh, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's part of the law of Christ. And it has overcome the law of sin and death. It's a higher law. It supersedes the law of sin and death. And it's like the, the laws of aerodynamics and the laws of gravity. You, know, you go up and jump off a tall building, the law of gravity is going to be in effect. If you get in that however many ton aircraft <laughs> And it's aerodynamically sound. You can take off and you overcome the law of gravity until you run out of fuel, you know, or whatever. 
But it's a it's a law that supersedes that other law, and that's the way the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is. In verse three, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, and He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law, which is love for one another, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now, Paul writes of the law of Christ here. James refers to it as the royal law, or we say the law of the king. In James 2.8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. And he refers to it twice as the law of liberty. James 1.25, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work this one will be blessed in what he does. James 2, 12 and 13. So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. We are set free to serve one another in love. If we want to remain free, standing fast in it, then we must continue in the spirit and thereby deny the flesh opportunity. If we place ourselves under the law of commandments, walking in the flesh, then we once again become entangled in a yoke of bondage. We fulfill the law of Christ by helping with the burdens that we each bear, with the burden of sin and guilt in this particular case in verse 1. Vincent again says the primary reference in the word burdens is to moral infirmities and errors and the sorrow and shame and remorse which they awaken in the offender. This is a saying that a, there's a saying that a shared burden is halved, and a shared joy is doubled. Guzik points out that the focus isn't on expect others to bear your burdens; that is self-focused and always leads to pride, frustration, discouragement, and depression. Instead, God always directs us to be other-focused. And says, bear one another's burdens. In verse 3, Paul writes, If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Pride is the first and insidious sin. It's intended to entrap. It's treacherous. It's very easy to walk in pride and not even realize it for what it is. It's self-centered and often blind to its own presence. This is an area where we might say, examine me, O Lord. Guzik says, to be proud is to be blind. Blind to the freely given favor and gifts of God. Blind to our sin and depravity. Blind to the good in others. And blind to the foolishness of self-centeredness. And it is so destructive to the church. There is a false humility, which is also pride. All shucks. I ain't nothing. In Romans 12, verses 3 through 5, Paul writes, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Uh, Soberly means in your right mind to have right thinking, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. We're never exhorted anywhere not to think more lowly of ourselves than we ought to think. But we're told often to think more highly of our not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think 
For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So we're all in this together. We should not think of ourselves more highly than others. No, you know, denigrating ourselves as well. We're uh, all in this body together and we're all members of one another. And so we're to be thinking about others. Um, trying to think of a saying came to mind uh, that generally goes like we're not uh, supposed to think um, humility is not thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less that's the gist of, of what it is it's not thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less over in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. This pride of knowledge is deceptive. He says, If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. So we're often warned in Scripture about being deceived, as we are here. The devils love to bring lies that is, doctrines of demons, they're defined in 1 Timothy 4.1, in order to deceive. And our only defense is the truth. It's imperative that our minds be in the Word of God, saturated, we might say marinated, in God's truth. This is our guard against deception and against self-deception. Because self-deception is one of the most, uh, <laughs> well, it's a bad form of deception. Now, Jeremiah 17.9 and 10, which we read you know, times recently says the heart's deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. James chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The only safe place for your mind to abide is in God's word. It is written is your defense against external and internal deception. When are you nothing in a spiritual sense? He says anyone who thinks they're something when they're nothing. Or when you think yourself to be something at that point. You're nothing. We're all justified in God's sight by His grace. There's no grounds for superiority or boasting in self-accomplishments. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. If we remain humble before the Lord, He will exalt us in due time. That is 1 Peter 5 and James 4. Then in Galatians chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, it says, Let each one examine his own work, and then he will have... He will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Or King James, I think, is, translates both words burden, bearing one another's burdens and then bearing your own burden. It's two different words in the Greek. The one is that, that heavy weight that's difficult to bear on your own. This one is like a military pack or backpack. 
And so there are certain things we're responsible to carry ourselves that nobody else can carry for us. We're each answerable to the Lord. We have this personal responsibility before Him. It will never do to answer, I was trying, but no one came to bear my burden. Because He will never leave us without remedy or without His presence if we are His. Psalms 27.10, David writes, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Even if I'm forsaken by my family, the Lord will, will take me up. So we're called to serve one another in love by helping with burdens, yet each of us is personally responsible to follow the Lord. No one can do that for another. If I dump my load on someone else, I will not escape responsibility. If I see someone else struggling and seek to help with their burden, I will be blessed in the Spirit. But there is that which no one else can bear but we ourselves. Remember the song, Lonesome Valley. I don't know if that's the name of the song, but you know, you got to walk the lonesome valley. You got to walk it by yourself. Can't nobody else walk it for you. I mean, he's talking about going through the valley of shadow of death, you know. But we each have that responsibility. Nobody can walk in the spirit for you. You have to bear your own backpack. So this examination talks about examining our own works. This, itself, this examination is done by outward expressions of faith or my actions. How am I measuring up to what the Word says? This is objective and not subjective. There's a danger in approaching this subjectively rather than looking at what the Word says and then uh, looking if I'm measuring up to that. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, says some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment but those of some men follow later so some men's sins are out in front of them and other ones are coming behind but he says likewise the good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden so there's this uh, it's objective measure and then in verse 6 it says uh, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him to teach us this is a principle that is established by God in both the Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testament, the people were commanded to tithe for the support of the tabernacle or the temple and its workmen, the priests and the Levites. And Paul addressed this in detail in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, which we covered verse by verse a while back. So let's just uh, read it once again to remind ourselves. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 1. Paul, defending his apostleship, says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Of course they did. They simply weren't eating and drinking at the expense of others. But, the, you know, traveling ministries normally did that. He says, don't we have a right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, or Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? 
Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Quote from Deuteronomy 25.4. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Well, he is concerned about oxen, but not. that's not the only reason he wrote this. Or does he say it all together for our own sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope. He who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we've sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? And this is what Paul's saying in this uh, sixth verse. If others are partakers of this right over you, are not are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, Paul says, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should take make my boasting void. So Paul wanted to give as much as he could and not take advantage. You know, he had the right as an apostle to uh, receive these things. So he's writing on behalf of others who needed that support. In the First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, again, he writes, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. This latter, the laborer is worthy of his wages, is from the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus sent out the 72 on their mission trip, it's verse 7 of Luke 10, says, uh, he says, tells them, Remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. So the Gospel of Luke apparently was available to Paul. We know Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. And it was completed and known then before the death of Paul. So, you know, people try to date it much later. No, it was within the lifetime of Paul. And, you know, much of Luke's gospel was probably received from Paul because Paul received his gospel from the Lord Jesus directly. And, of course, Luke interviewed some other people, you know, and talked to, probably talked to Mary and Elizabeth and those folks. So Paul didn't take advantage of this right to be supported by his gospel work. Whenever he was able, he would work full-time in the ministry. This is a misnomer because, you know, full-time in the ministry it just means not working a secular job. But uh, every believer is to be full-time in ministry, in the service of the Lord. But he received these voluntary offerings from some of the churches that he established. For example, the Philippians when he was jailed in Rome. Uh, Philippians four ten through 20, you can read about this contribution the Philippians sent to him. But much of the time, Paul was bivocational. He worked to provide his own needs and at times those the needs of his ministry partners. Now, all Jewish males were to learn a trade, and Paul was a tent maker. And all who were called to ministry would do well to have some skill to fall back on, either for beginning ministry or for lean times that may come. Uh, Chuck Smith 
uh, worked for the first 17 years that he was in ministry, worked outside, you know, the church and ministry. There are many pastors in the U.S. and many more around the world that work a secular job to supply the needs of themselves, their families, and sometimes the ministry. Ephesians 4 tells us that the saints, not just pastors or teachers, are to be equipped for the work of ministry. The lack of remuneration does not relieve any of us of doing that which God has called us to do and for which we are responsible to him. We are all in full-time ministry. Jesus is first. Everything else is next. This area of financial support of pastors is often used as an attack upon the church by various cultic groups. For example, Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they attack pastors because or those who receive you know, wages. They accuse Christian pastors of only being in it for the money. And unfortunately, those who preach the prosperity gospel, which is another gospel and no good news at all, give them much fuel for their blasphemous fire. I've shared before how uh, there's that old saying in the old days about how many a man has been called into the ministry by a hot day and a slow mule. And so there are those who feel that, you know, well, this is a good way to make a living. Uh, and many times, like with state churches, the Church of England, you know, we'll watch some of these old uh, Jane Austen stories and stuff. And you'll find the pastors many times, they're just there because it's a nice, cushy job, you know. And anytime you have a state church, a lot of times you're going to have people in uh, pastoral ministry, I guess, that aren't even believers. They're just there to um, have a nice living. So that many times leads to unsaved leadership. But it's clear from Scripture that being supported by gospel work is a legitimate partaking of the fruits of the ministry. But each one will give an account of how they have used or abused this provision of the Lord. In the sake of full disclosure, I have no current need to be uh, supported financially by the ministry, but I do receive a book allowance for study materials. 